descendant of woman, Elaine Morgan claimed that humans once lived, ate, and reproduced in water. She believed that this aquatic phase was the missing link in our past. Like sea mammals, but unlike all land mammals, we developed an insulating fat layer and lost most of our hair. The hair that did remain appears to follow the flow of water as it passes over our bodies. While the hair on the head would have provided a handhold for the infants to cling on to. And if they let go, that was no problem. They could hold their breath underwater or float on the surface. The difference in the amount of fat may be slight in human adults, but in babies, it's marked. Unlike all other primates, which are born with almost no body fat, human babies are born with plenty of it. Fat is a, is a specific evolutionary development. It's not just a punishment for eating too much. The human child spends longer in the womb than the chimp does, and the whole of the last month is spent accumulating fat. And after it's born, it gets fatter and fatter and fatter for the whole of this first 12 months on Earth. There must be some good reason for this. And Elaine Morgan thinks there is. Fat does something more than insulate. It provides buoyancy. And if we did have an aquatic past, this ability to float with ease may be the reason for all that baby fat. There's another odd thing about humans, breath control. For land mammals, the lungs pump away the heartbeats unconsciously. But humans, like aquatic mammals, can make this process conscious if they want to. They can estimate how much breath is needed for a dive and how long they need to hold it. That makes humans able to do what no other primate can, control precisely the flow of air over a voice box. So a former life in the water could even explain the evolution of language. Humans stand up and they speak.
somebody out there in dreamland, this is Rumors of Instinct. You are now tuning in to the Rumors of Instinct podcast. It is my great pleasure to bring you an episode that I've been wanting to make for a long time, since the beginning of this podcast, and even since the beginning of my YouTube channel, um, The Aquatic Ape Theory, a theory that I think is crucially important um, not in only the terms of understanding an alternative uh, path of evolutionary history and uh, development for the human race, but also in terms of understanding how the human race could have diverged into, at the very least, two different uh, equally intelligent and industrious um, subspecies and have been separated into full the divergent uh, life form species in themselves in the same order with radically different physiologies um, explaining the phenomenon of mermaids of merfolk of Atlantean underwater beings of um, you know so many different superstitions, mysteries, folklores legends, myths and tales of the sea and of specifically oceanic environments but these are also phenomena found in uh, freshwater they're not just relegated to the saltwater environs and um, or biomes and environments. Sorry, I try to combine the human biomes, but environments and biomes. Basically, where there are, is a substantial amount of water, you have legends of aquatic humanoids, aquatic humans, uh, basically, um, and underwater kingdoms uh, being associated with. All manner of tribes in all geographies all across the world, from primitive hunter-gatherers in Africa to the Japanese and their mythologies. Um, Speaking about the Japanese and Asia itself, incredibly tied to myths of dragon emperors who lived in the oceans and... The phenomenon of USOs is not new, and for any learned individual, highly um, familiar and common in these Asian countries where UFOs are associated with the oceans, with the seas, with coming from the seas, with uh, entering the oceans, um, basically UFOs being more concerned with islands in the Pacific coastal areas in the Pacific than they are of mainland areas. Uh, for example, in Vietnam, they were associated with uh, the Bay of Tonkin and the river. The, uh, the, uh, I want to say the Din Ben Phuen River, um, but they are basically associated with waterways. In America, for example, they are associated with lakes. UFOs have a huge history with lakes 
and bodies of water like reservoirs with most of the actual math being done on UFO sightings being coastal cities. Uh, South Carolina, um, um, uh, Florida, uh, the Gulf Coast, Texas, Houston, for example, all uh, Corpus Christi, uh, my home city have, uh, and then you got Pensacola, there's just so many, Key West, Florida, Puerto Rico, Cuba, uh, Brazil, these are you know, countries associated with connections to water um, in the Western Hemisphere. But then you have Alaska, for example, uh, California, on the West Coast, and then Hawaii, and and keep going on. There's just so many, more than you really can be counted. And geographically speaking, they are connected to the uh, oceans and the waterways of the Earth. Uh, The aquatic ape theory... Uh, it's important to me because it is a crucial um, entry point, it's a gateway to understanding this a very important, fundamental, important tenet in the secret space program and the uh, like the idea of understanding the cosmos and the world that we're living in is a multi-species planet, a society that can exist and is existing currently, coexisting with other equally intelligent but physiologically radically different to the point that they don't compete or have overlapping uh, territories and or um, uh, terri- you know uh, food supply needs or um, you know they don't have a lot of competition between each other. And they can value and seek to uh, maintain status quos of, of living conditions which are beneficial to one another. So the fundamentally important thing to take away from this is that the aquatic ape theory can explain, maybe uh, be the first introduction, the 101, um, to a layman Um, how within the human species there could be this mutual coexistence between two radically different versions of itself, let alone the cooperation and communication and coexistence of many, many, many different species of equal intelligence, all approximately equal intelligence, but with radically different physiologies to the point that um, there may be an existential crisis upon discovery, but that's ironically the biggest danger of these coexisting species is that they produce um, a lot of um, existential questioning and doubt and then uh, society itself is kind of framed to keep each other secret, or at least keep ourselves ignorant of the other's existences, because it just brings up so many questions about how the whole thing operates and in a society that is not meant to nourish the spiritual spiritual side of it, and they don't want to keep um, you know people growing and evolving. They want to keep them in that state of. Uh, 
you know, um, basic everyday survival and sustenance. Um, you know, they don't try to, they, they don't really keep it too guarded of a secret. They don't really keep it too guarded of a secret. But at the same time, um, they don't advertise it or publicize it at all. They don't, um, you know, advertise it in schools. They don't teach it in universities. They don't teach it in academics. They don't, you know, show um, uh, mainstream um, scientists researching it or investigating or even speaking about it. They don't address the controversy. In fact, its main proponents have always been uh, very controversial, uh, obscure uh, thinkers and, and philosophers. And it's actually uh, first proposed in a book entitled The Descent of Woman, which was a radical uh, feminist, I believe, from Australia that uh, had first created this theory that mankind in its earliest days uh, was a marine or semi-marine creature that ate, procreated, uh, you know, gave childbirth, and traveled in the water, predominantly, majoritably in the water, and that a number of physiological and... Uh, mental uh, evolutionary aspects of mankind and attributes uh, point to this uh, very clearly, such as the lack of body hair on, uh, you know, the, the, the human being as an animal, the very thin amount of body hair we have, and the body hair we have growing in such a pattern as to... Uh, you know, have adhered to marine travel. It moves with the flow of water, for example. Um, the fact that babies have a high body fat to, uh, you know, BMI index because they are meant to float. They and they can naturally swim and orient themselves right ways up, navigate themselves in water. Um, they can hold their breath. Uh, instinctively, for example, the idea of holding your breath, we take it for granted, but it's actually a very rare skill in um, the animal world, the mammalian world. And, and even though it seems very wild to propose that theory, uh, I want to kind of uh, take a long time to, you know, relatively long time, this isn't going to be a short episode at all, to address the controversy and to bring up the correctness of this thought, the rationality of this thought, the logic of this thought, because there have been a lot of uh, researchers to delve into it and to, you know, show that there is data, there is evidence that suggests that this is right. And not only that, there is precedent. Now, this requires a revolutionary you know, personally revolutionary uh, attitude towards human evolution. So if you're trying to dogmatically adhere to Darwinian um, theories and 
not even Darwinian theories, but the modern-day anthropological, Anthropocene, um, anthrocentric, African origins, like Lucy and, uh, you know, uh, Denisovan man and things like that, then, well, Denisovan man would be more evidence to suggest my theory of divergence, but remember, evolution isn't a world written in stone, speculative evolution that we've already covered before, uh, requires an imagination, almost an artistry, almost a willingness to uh, engage in, um, you know, radical fantasy, such as the idea of a shrimp that acted like a baleen whale, and then having that been proven true, this is what we said, that it can be validated uh, taking these steps of imagination, taking these leaps and bounds of, of radical imagination in the world of uh, biology or hard sciences, right? So I understand that you want to defend the legitimacy of these natural sciences by the Royal Society standards of what is true, you know, what is mainstream, what is acceptable in academia. But remember that it's all really up for debate and evidence physical evidence of it really does show that it's not worth just uh, excluding or just treating like a um, you know a theory literally with no basis in reality this is a theory that has more basis in reality I believe after seeing all the evidence than the current evolutionary, you know, accepted um, theory or accepted speculation on part of the uh, Smithsonian Institute and etc., like the big, the big um, academic world leaders. So, you know, I'm thanking you guys in advance uh, for your for tuning in. I'm thanking you guys for your advance for your support. You're the greatest audience out there in Dreamland. I sincerely, sincerely appreciate each and every one of you uh, tuning in. Um, you know, both new and old listeners alike. You know, sincerely appreciate it. If you guys would consider following my social media at on Instagram at Rumors of Instinct, all one word are uh, following this um, channel's YouTube, um, you know, uploads on the YouTube channel, The Rumors of Instinct Podcast. I believe it's just the Rumors of Instinct Podcast, not the, so it's just Rumors of Instinct Podcast. Um, I'd greatly appreciate it. And, you know, you guys can follow up. I post and upload there full time. So you keep, um, keep progress, keep, uh, keep, you know, track of everything I'm doing, as well as kind of gain some uh, personal insight as well as you have a chance to reach out and everything. And uh, currently, direct messaging can be uh, purchased for as little as a dollar a month, as well as the access to exclusive content. And uh, this podcast, for example, this episode, will be half-featured to the public. Available, you know, Most of the, the major points will be covered in the first half, and that will be available for everyone on Spotify, of course, so they can gain the basic education of it, but the second half of the episode will be exclusive to my Patreons, and it will delve deeper into the more, what you would call, uh, advanced curriculum, which would be the reports of 
underwater humanoids in um, UFO history lore by the military, uh, the experiences of these subterranean, uh, submarine, um, you know, humanoids and and, and beings, these terrestrials, um, these marine terrestrials, and the secret space program, as, as you know, I have experienced them and recall them, and absolutely, um, you know, just 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 so much more. And that second, that second exclusive hour of the podcast. So if you guys want to gain access to it, as well as the chance to direct message me about any questions or curiosities, you can gain access to that by purchasing your monthly ticket to Patreon uh, for, you know, starting at a dollar. And that is cheaper than a, you know, cup of coffee at the corner store that is cheaper than, um, you know, a double cheeseburger at McDonald's. So, you know, for one dollar a month, you get the direct messaging um, capabilities as well as a you know link to this exclusive content, which I'll be uploading online. So, thank you guys in advance for considering that. The Patreon is Patreon.com/slash The Rumors of Instinct Podcast. So, thank you all in advance once again. Namaste and Shalom. So let's get started with the aquatic ape theory. Alright, let's get back into it. Dive right into it. The aquatic ape hypothesis. I'm going to be reading the Wikipedia article here for reference. The aquatic ape hypothesis. The AAH also referred to as the aquatic ape theory, the AAT, or the waterside hypothesis of human evolution, postulates that the ancestors of modern humans took a divergent evolutionary pathway from the other great apes by becoming adapted to a more aquatic habitat. The hypothesis was initially proposed by the marine biologist Alistair Hardy in 1960, who argued that a branch of apes was forced by competition over terrestrial habitats to hunt for food such as shellfish on the seashore and seabed, leading to adaptations that explain distinctive characteristics of modern humans such as the functionally hairless and bipedal nature of man. Elaine Morgan's 1990 book on the hypothesis, titled Scars of Evolution, received some favorable reviews, but was subject to criticism from the anthropologist John Langdon in 1997, who characterized it as an umbrella hypothesis with inconsistencies that were unresolved and a claim to parsimony that was false. Parsimony is Occam's razor. The theory that, um, that the easiest answer is correct. So he's saying the aquatic ape theory does not postulate the easiest answer. The hypothesis is highly controversial and has been criticized as pseudoscience. The hypothesis is thought to be more popular with the lay public than with scientists. Yeah, I guess bringing us this crossroads right here. In the scientific literature, it is generally ignored by anthropologists. The same statements I have made earlier that 
this is a extremely controversial and thus relegated to obscurity uh, within the academic institutions. You will very seldomly and extremely rarely ever encounter it being taught, and if it is, it's taught as a fringe theory, and the controversies are taught, the weaknesses of the argument, and it's generally attacked as a type of taboo subject within the world of anthropology. Now, I think this is extremely ironic because the world of academia is known to repress and to be in this constant battle with the truth. Uh, so, you know, take that for what you will. Uh, I would also note back the earlier episode I have done about the dinosaur hoax and how inconsistent their own discoveries are. I mean, their own claims are, but how consistent the, how consistently they are hostile to outside opinion, how consistently they are hostile to, um, questions or controversies within their own held beliefs, uh, those being the ones shared by their Congress, their, uh, committees, their, uh, their own alumni, um, I was say Illuminati, within their own ranks, but their own alumni within their own um, programs, their own, their own um, research programs. And to the point that um, they still hold to high regard those in their ranks and in their history um, that have been proven to be, um, you know, forgers and, and uh, falsifiers of their own scientific research and development uh, simply because traditionally they are important to the field of the study itself and not the accuracy of the research or the accuracy of the subject. Um, Ogden Marsh, for example, is considered uh, one of the greatest and, and most influential paleontologists, which is arguably true, but at the same time nearly 90% of all his uh, knowledge and discoveries and, uh, you know, real academic work has already been not only proven obsolete, but proven to be absolutely erroneous, uh, including the uh, falsification and the misidentification of specimens, um, purposely creating and, and uh, forging specimens, um, et cetera, et cetera, because his motivations were not purely charitable. They were not purely uh, for the benefit of the truth. The truth is actually one of the least uh, motivating of his of his uh, priorities. Uh, same thing with these anthropologists. Same thing with these academics. The theory is argued as untrue, but really. It is argued as uh, less true than the untruths that are being spoken about within the academic halls and the marble halls of universities, lecture halls, uh, the classrooms, etc., as well as what's uh, publishable and printable by the you know modern day, uh, I guess you call it influencers within the world of anthropology. Nothing more, nothing less. It's just they don't like it. They they have 
very recently stood up against it within 1997, exactly, and it was a theory that has always garnered and been a lightning rod and garnered a lot of controversy to the point that it is exactly disproportionately taboo for what it tries to postulate, which is that a lot of the physiological uh, evolutions and adaptations of mankind are more in common with a amphibious and or marine mammal and or, uh, you know, um, at least halted through mid-transformation, a light degree of spe uh, specialization and adaptation within our own species. fever has been getting to me. There's a lot of dust and, and pollen all of a sudden I try to record uh, in one take, so I had to cut it back away from the microphone there for a second, but thank you very much uh, for your patience, and yeah, let's keep going on. So that was basically the history of the theory itself. The Hardy-Morgan um, hypothesis. Like I said, the, uh, the, the creators, Alistair Hardy, and Elaine Morgan, the ones that popularized it and really were the champions of it. Their hypothesis can be easily summed up as um, a thesis is that a branch of the primitive ape stock was forced to competitive was forced by competition from life in the trees to feed on the seashores and to hunt food, shellfish, sea urchins, etc. in the shallow waters off the coast. I suppose that they were forced into the water just as we have seen happen in so many other groups of terrestrial animals. I'm imagining this type happening in the warmer parts of the world, in the tropical seas where man could stand being in the water for relatively long periods. That is, several hours at a stretch. Hardy argued a number of features of modern humans are characteristic of aquatic adaptations. He pointed to humans' lack of body hair as being analogous to the same lack seen in whales and hippopotamuses, and noted the layer of subcutaneous fat humans have that Hardy believed other apes lacked. And then um, it goes on to kind of like rebut it, which is, like I said, this is coming from a mainstream source, so there's always like every little thing they tell you about it, and they had to quickly tell you why it's, it's oh, this is, this is why it's not, because... Etc. 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 Additionally, features cited by Hardy include the location of the trachea and the throat, rather than the nasal cavity, the human propensity for front-facing copulation, tears, and the ecrine sweating system. Though these claims, he, though these claims, Hardy additionally posited that bipedalism evolved first as an aid to wading, before becoming the usual means of human locomotion and tool use evolved out of the use of rocks to crack open shellfish. These last arguments were cited by later proponents of the AAH as an inspiration for their research programs. Morgan summed up her take in the hypothesis in 2011. Waterside hypothesis of human evolution asserts that selections from wading, swimming, and diving, and procurement of food from aquatic habitats has significantly affected the evolution of the lineage leading to Homo sapiens as distinct from that leading to Pan. 
the genus Pan consists of two extinct species, the chimpanzee and the bonobo. Well, I'm not talking about Pan, the uh, Greek, you know, satire god, the goat man, but Pan, the actual, uh, I guess you would call it genus of chimpanzees and bonobos. So your um, semi-arboreal, semi-terrestrial, uh, you know, humanoids, your chimpanzees, your gorillas, and that at that distinct separation of higher primate, there was a brief sojourn of the apes that would directly become humanity into a aquatic, semi-aquatic, shallow sea aquatic uh, amphibian or marine environment. They postulate marine due to shellfish, but there are freshwater shellfish, including freshwater shrimps, freshwater crabs. Um, I would assume more of a brackish environment or even more of a salt, of a freshwater um, river estuary system where the drinking water and the salt water would be within walking distance, you know, um, given the overflow systems. In their theory, they believe it's competition that drove man um, to this limit, but I believe it was actually a more fertile, you know, hunting ground, breeding ground, and safer in many regards because the arboreal predators of the jungle um, would be exposed in the low coverage of the beach as well as the ability to track and to um, secure areas would be much easier when you have, for example, the barrier of the ocean on one side that's never changing, as well as the consistently uh, high visibilities areas, such as uh, where I live is a beach, you know, generally located is the beach environment. Tall grass, and there are very, very few trees um, on the island or anywhere near there. Um, you know, actually proper to the water because of the salt, because the salt uh, is not conducive. Maybe mangroves, maybe uh, palms, conifers like that, which would also benefit mankind for being usable for uh, fire, for shelter, and for, uh, you know, foraging grounds containing birds, um, you know, small terrestrial mammals like possums, uh, shore animals like raccoons, prairie dogs, etc., this is, is, is really, if you just spent a lot of time out there, um, self-evident, especially if you looked at the environment such as um, in Africa, where it's postulated that mankind evolved, the cradle of you know civilization is Africa, that the Nile River could easily be the area in discussion, because the Nile River is um, generally a shallow river. Uh, with a lot of wading areas and opportunities in the tall grass and the reeds. Egyptian society, for example, made great use of the fertile Nile crescent in the valley to hunt uh, everything from hippopotamuses to birds, ducks. Uh, the domesticated house cat was actually a river cat that um, existed in the reeds, and it was used to hunt birds uh, in its first days of ancient Egypt. 
the rivers are extremely important to mankind's evolution. Most of human settlements and civilizations, like cities, are formed on rivers. For example, the Nile. Uh, just using the Nile as a specific example, it's it's thousands of miles long. Uh, you, there were several kingdoms that see. It's so long that several kingdoms can form on its shores. Um, being, you know, a lifeblood between them, as well as uh, the silt and, and the mineral composition of the dirt around it being an oasis with a relative desert. I don't believe there was outward competition that forced human beings into these environments. I believe it, they were just the prime environments. They were the oasises. They offered... Um, amazingly rich protein in the form of shellfish and the shellfish were eaten fish and, and seafood and they are best caught by wading into the water now wading into the water offers its own sense of dangers in the form of crocodiles and hippopotamuses but mankind would then go on to evolve their intellect um you know, if you want to believe in a natural Darwinian evolution to create boats, uh, fishing spears, um, to work in teams, uh, to, you know, develop things like rope, um, to use fire to cook the seafood. And even then, you can eat uh, most seafoods and shellfish. You can eat them undercooked, you know, very easily uh, without much of a problem if you eat them fresh. So, it would be a perfect environment for a proto-human or a primitive human, um, a caveman, if you were, because instead of finding its uh, shelter in a cave in a mountainous area uh, during a, a presumed ice age, it would be in a tropical wetland area or a shore area. It would be in a warmer and more... Um, you know, fertile environment, as well as evolving traits to help it even become uh, better suited to these environments, growing taller, uh, becoming smarter, becoming uh, more teamwork oriented. This would improve their survival ratings to the point that evolution and adaptation would be faster and faster and faster and faster, uh, creating things like family um, families, houses, you know, city-states, tribes, villages, much quicker. And it's postulated and theorized that mankind invented fire a million years ago, but only invented civilization 10,000 years ago, modern version of civilization. So going with purely Darwinian evolutionary models. That at one point inside this million years... Fire-possessing man, which is basically modern man, could have deviated significantly from an original ecosystem, say in the jungles, uh, you know, as hunter-gatherers are in sub-Saharan land or in the steeps, the grasslands, and decided to become permanent residents of freshwater or saltwater habitats, and thus helped create within, you know, just a purely Darwinian natural evolutionary stance, the fundamental building blocks that would see us be 
truly modern man. Agriculture, domestication of animals, um, tool use, uh, clothing, you know, society, religion, etc., etc. And thus, you know, finishing up our physiological makeup. Uh, less actual body hair, taller, um, you know, rounding out the ideas of our, our physiology, webbed fingers, things like that. Uh, you know, extended forelimbs, subcutaneous fat, uh, a little blubber layer. Uh, look at the Pacific Islanders or the Easter Islanders for that for that uh, type of body shape. The more prone you are, the more exactly yeah, longer suited you are for marine environments. The more subcutaneous fat you actually have. Uh, look at Eskimos, for example. Um, this idea of, of mankind's relationship with fat and then with protein diets. Most apes are actually vegetarian, entirely vegetarian, except for your higher mental facility leveled ones like chimpanzees. But then again, bonobos are just like chimpanzees but choose to be vegetarian. Um, it's a very rare uh, trait to have in primates is this idea of carnivore uh, natures. It's much more common, though, to find foraging apes in, uh, say, macaques or, um, you know, the Himalayan snow monkeys or things like that, like the Himalayans, the Japanese snow monkeys. Um, they seem to thrive in environments that allow them to forage shellfish and to eat uh, and to kind of uh, find shelter in the water, specifically in hot springs in different uh, coastal oceanic environments. Same thing I think happened with mankind at a primate level. Uh, if you haven't already, you know, pieced it together, I am a proponent of the um, aquatic ape theory. I believe in the aquatic ape theory. I, I think this is more accurate than the traditional and mainstream Darwinian mode of evolution. Uh, that which I am not a fan of and which I believe that the historical record will hold out is inaccurate, uh, being the greatest amount of corruption and forgery accepted by the largest amount of people in the history of archaeology, paleontology, anthropology, you just name it. It actually is going to be something when discovered uh, for the extent of the true corruption that there was, uh, maybe enough to destabilize the entire authority of academia itself. Um, everything from uh, the creation of Lucy, the forgery of Lucy, which was an orang a baboon skull, um, rearranged to the continuing uh, absurd discoveries of these missing link hominids and the furthering of the goalposts that is the creation of the uh, evolutionary history of mankind uh, from its inception of descending from the trees, as it were, the descent of man to the creation of the modern physiology. Uh, Lloyd Pye said it best, and that is, every single record we have of hominids is nowhere near uh, close enough to be considered a man, a species of man. It is, they're primates, yes, you can argue that. Hominids, yeah, um, yes, but not humanoids. Like, there was hominids and hominems. Like, like, yes, they're hominids, but they're not homin hominems. Uh, 
and that the deviation, the number of deviations, even from the nearest, is well into the hundreds, meaning that evolutionary-wise, it's actually a matter of millions of years, um, you know, of, of further from from the accurate truth. So, uh, same as finding a, a lemur and, and postulating that's where mankind came from, um, you know, it has absolutely no bearing in reality. Related academic and independent research. Although the general reaction to Hardy and Morgan's proposal was silenced by the relevant academic community, there have been over the last decades some academics who were inspired by the AAH proposal. Even the point of pursuing particular lines of research on its basis. Some of the academics and professional scientists who have supported the AAH include Michael Crawford, professor and director of the Institute of Brain Chemistry and Human Nutrition at Imperial College, London. His former postdoctoral researcher, Stephen Kunan, now professor of medicine at the Université de Sherbrooke. Erica Shagade, professor of environmental physiology at Mid-Sweden University. Kathleen M. Stewart, section head of paleobiology at the Canadian Museum of Nature. And Tom Brenna, professor of pediatrics and chemistry at University of Texas. Weighting and bipedalism. AAH proponent Algis Kulakis performed experiments to measure the comparative energy used when lacking orthograde posture with using fully upright posture. Although it is harder to walk upright with bent knees on land, this difference gradually diminishes as the depth of water increases and is still practical in thigh-high water. In a critic of AAH, Henry G. questioned any link between bipedalism and diet. G. writes that early humans have been bipedal for 5 million years, but our ancestors' fondness for seafood emerged a mere 200,000 years ago. Now, this is an A-side because I kind of just wanted to keep it as a... This part is a strict reading of the material already present without adding my opinion, but as an opinion editorial right here. This is exactly what I was saying. If mankind can be separated into stages of developments where the earliest stages of mankind, of the human race, are not technically human, right? They are so primitive and and, and not in a way that's judgment, but it's a different environment and uh, physiology. The physiology obviously was not evolved to the point of modern, current man, so that it can be considered different. But, you know, the ancestral species. If... Exactly. That the first stage is a bipedalism, because bipedalism isn't the silver bullet for humanity. It wasn't that when we started to walk upright, we were fully functioning human beings at that point. Like, we had our minds and our souls and our abilities and our our cognitive intelligence 
before we stood upright, and that all we needed, the missing link, like the the, the, the secret res the secret ingredient to this, you know, recipe of, of the dominant species on Earth, was simply to stand up. Like we were in the trees, and as soon as we dropped from the trees, we stood up. We started just being regular human beings, making clothing, making tools, forming societies, tribes, engaging in warfare, engaging in hunts, creating, like I said, metals out of, like, minerals, etc., etc. This, that's not the case. It's that everything was concurrently evolving at the same time, and that it would help each other and compound the growth of one another. See, intelligence uh, or diet would would necessitate the need for bipedalism, and bipedalism would allow uh, intelligence to increase and increase survivability, thus in growing the populations. Populations grow generationally, and thus creating uh, the complex social systems and societies because there's a high survival rate because of the food and because of the uh, increased, you know, mating opportunities, thus creates things like families, et cetera, et cetera. And, like, the families then require tools because now they're in a more competitive system or to thus unlock, you know, greater, like, say, for example, they have fire, and the after one million years ago, they, they designed a fire, but that tools were not developed yet. So to, say, for example, fabricate wood, you know, to, to get wood, to, just, to chop wood, you have to then make an axe. Uh, you know, and the, the, those that can make uh, the better fires would be more attractive to their, you know, uh, neighbors. And it wouldn't be a matter of violence and hostility, but it would be more of a matter of practicality and, um, you know, attractiveness, you know, like, uh, like productiveness, uh, uh, the ability to provide. And thus, for example, the coastal or water uh, humans, if this was to be considered, because the main weakness of the idea is that people think the entire human race had to thus, you know, be a, a part of this movement, a part of this evolution. There was a point where within that five million years, when mankind was bipedal and can be considered one root species, one ancestor species, the population's were they split they separated they branched off from each other there were coastal human beings there were water human beings like uh, amphibious and more marine environment human beings there were land-based human beings there were mountainous human beings there were beings that lived in deserts in the forest etc etc and they all evolved separate adaptations over this course of a million years uh, or like four million years, sorry. This is before fire. So given the hypothesis that we had five million years ago, mankind first stood up, basically. Super simplify it. Barney style. Five million years, mankind stood up, right? And then, you know, looked around and was like, all right, we're going on two legs from now on. We had four million years to then walk around and, and decide amongst ourselves where we wanted to live. 
And in that four million years, I'm pretty sure mankind spread out enough to see at least one example of every environment and biome, including mountains, oceans, snow, desert, hot, you know, dry, wet, uh, low altitude, high altitude, uh, like exactly like every every single um, everything from subterranean environments to to uh, you know, um, everything, right? Everything, basically. The whole, the whole spectrum. We had one representative, at least, in every spectrum. These small family groups, these original tribes, would either survive or perish, depending on these, the hostility of that environment, obviously. Those that survived would thrive. And then those that didn't thrive would be assume, or would leave and become assimilated back into environment, back into the larger and stronger tribes. These tribes would then form subspecies because they become so isolated from each other. Remember, this is over the course of four million years. That you say you have a two million year trial period, you know, two million years of experimentation of the physiology, of exploration of the earth of carving out niches in survival and, and formulating and trying to adapt and survive. So after two million years, you have a two million year recovery period where those species that were then separate from each other, those, I mean, those members of humanity that were separated from each other, reunite. You have a great migration where the desert humans meet the ocean humans again, and they trade you know, members and, and stories and experiences and they interbreed or they choose to, to convert over to the ocean ways or they choose to leave to the desert ways, etc., etc. Remember, this isn't the mainstream, uh, like, uh, possibilities. Then those physiologies and adaptations that were proven successful, like the taller, uh, more intelligent, uh, tool-wielding members of society would you know, be the leaders would be the most successful members of their of the species, and those would then create the new generations after they reunited with each other, uh, dominant genes basically, the dominant members of the society. This is why we didn't go full one way or the other. We didn't go full amphibian or marine because we had constant access to members of the species and we didn't require a total commitment we could we could go back and forth we could travel we could have one generation that lived entirely on the water's edge and that same family line simply moving inland a couple of hundred miles and having a completely different environment and then for another century going into a third even much different environment so the general body plan you know, if I'm going to play devil's advocate, it becomes a more regeneralist. It becomes more of a, a, a blank slate, but capable of doing everything equally well. And thus the evolution becomes less of our bodies, but more of our minds and more of our behavior. This is why I don't think that humans have flippers. We don't need them. We could learn how to swim, though, and a infant, upon, his, upon its birth, can be decided for which way it's going to go. It can be thrown immediately in the water or have a water birth and be fine because it can instantly hold its breath. 
It could also be born in the middle of the Sahara Desert. It could be born on the top of Mount Everest. It could be born in a cave. It could be born in the middle of a bustling city in a flat plain in, in Kansas. It can thus be anything. It's, a, it's an omni-tool. It's a Swiss army knife, basically, of a being and a primate, which is with a modern man where we're dealing with now. The fact that we are not entirely aquatic is not disproof for the aquatic ape theory because the aquatic ape theory suggests that just at one point in our evolution we were so influenced by a marine environment and a marine uh, food supply that the terrestrial basis of the organism started to slant highly favorably to amphibious and marine physiologies or adaptations of physiologies that would be beneficial and that is just common sense the same as if you look at a macaque or a Japanese snow monkey that Japanese snow monkey is not a marine animal you can't expect it to swim in the deepest of oceans but it can hang out in a hot tub during the winter and thus it explains why a ape can survive. It's the most northern and coldest temperature ape in the world because it uses hot tubs, uh, natural spring systems that are available only. They're unique to Japan and North Japan, but they have allowed it to exist in an environment where it doesn't have competition, where they can thrive, but is not normal because they can adapt and utilize and hybridize their behavior they're they don't grow flippers they're not growing gills they're not growing a third transparent eyelid so they can see underwater but they do eat crabs they do eat shellfish like clams and like 90 percent of their life revolves around the coastline are these hot water guys it's like their society the way they, they, they view, uh, you know, their prime real estate, basically, the way they, they conduct their life. It's become entirely adapted to an aquatic amphibian-type lifestyle, a mindset. Uh, whereas gorillas, who live in a much more warm and uh, jungle environment in the mountains, are afraid of water. They actually fear water. They don't cross running water even when it's only a few inches deep, and they will not swim at all. There has been very few cases of gorillas uh, ever demonstrating swimming uh, in captivity or in the wild. Not that they lack water. They have ample rivers, lakes, swamps, uh, you know, in the rainforest environment they live in. They have not adapted fully, even though they could, because their environment allows it to compensate aquatic environments to compensate this amphibian lifestyle they can live literally at a river's edge eating and foraging the plants there but not be able to cross the river or swim inside of it uh, because it's a natural barrier to them this literally splits their populations where you could have one group of gorillas on one side of the river and another group of gorillas on the other side of the river and they can't connect, they can't communicate with each other and they can't interbreed. They can literally, you can literally form a pocket 
island-specific uh, species of primates, like the lemurs of Madagascar, by simply putting them on an island, because there is no way for them to, to cross that waterway. They just will not. They're not very strong swimmers. Which breeds a lot of mystery as to how these these apes transfer and, and get transported, you know, across these various locations. Um, but oceans are a barrier to populations. That's absolutely a case. Now, if you have an aquatic mindset, an amphibian mindset, waterways are traversable, regardless if they extend over the horizon, regardless of their depth, because the amphibian mindset is a is one geared towards navigating waterways. It is not intimidated immediately by water, or at least not to a greater extent, you know, behind rationality. Like, yes, you're not going to try to swim where you're going to drown, but it is unimaginable for human beings to have not evolved with the aquatic ape hypothesis or theory uh, being reality because we have so much oceanic travel and trade exploration it's one of the most unique things about humanity is our willingness to travel the oceans to map the oceans to be involved with the oceans and oceanic life you can say that this is a cultural phenomenon driven by uh, the economies, but the debate of whether or not man, ancient man could have traveled across the oceans was settled in the 70s. Even with the most primitive te of technology, mankind still can use the stars and navigate and use the tides and currents and island hop, which explains why the Samoans exist or why people are native to Hawaii or people are living on Easter Island, etc., etc., that is an aquatic mindset. The idea of tropical islanders or aborigines in Australia proves the aquatic ape hypothesis, in my opinion, because even though Australia is a desert and an outback, those men, the aborigines, had to sail there. They had to get on boats, they had to travel the oceans, and then they had to go to that desert and then learn desert survival skills. But the desert survival skills are in defiance of their typical need and expected culture to survive around waterways. Water itself is the most valuable and uh, precious resource in every single ancient and modern world uh, civilization. It's just taken for so much granted. It's taken for so granted that it, it's a form of modernization like electricity or power or food that people are so divorced and, and detached from life that they they just take it for granted. Like the adaptations they have, such as tier systems and stuff, fat, etc., etc., bipedalism, the way the leg is structured. But the simple fact that human beings need gallons of fresh water uh, to, to adequately survive, to be moisturized and hydrated, as well as the... This the evolutionary benefit of, of omega threes located shellfish and and, and um, fish itself seafood, which if you believed in a purely uh, terrestrial based or arboreal based evolution, there is very few opportunities for the the development of the human brain, given the nutrition and the food available 
towards like in that in that system. There's a reason why, uh, even though chimpanzees and gorillas are intelligent, they are not as intelligent as human beings. And the 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 silver bullet that human beings had that gave us this evolutionary you know upper hand was the ability to eat fish, was the ability to eat seafood. You know, we moved away from a purely vegetarian diet, not to hunting savanna animals, not to holding spears and throwing rocks and shooting arrows at rabbits and, like, you know, boars and deer and stuff. We started foraging clams, eating crabs, uh, shrimp, uh, watching the birds, observing uh, the fish and, and, and taking advantage of that building, uh, that the earliest attempts at agriculture were not land-based agricultural experiments. They were hydrocultures. They were the um, the corralling of fish, the um, manipulation of waterways to uh, allow for the crops to grow, the creation of rice paddies, for example. Um, everything that we think is inherently a product of the Ice Age or of cavemen is absolutely a product of living in wetland or coastal environments or oasis environments. Even the idea of permanent establishments and settlements require year-round dependable uh, waterways, access to water, like uh, not a, a... seasonal rainy season uh, like the monsoons but direct contact with a river direct contact with a lake you know like this is not something that man if the rains were seasonal mankind would have you know that just would never have evolved never have got that uh, that cultural like dependence on on permanent access to water, irrigation systems, running water, sanitation, bathing, um, etc., etc. Everything is is due to mankind's uh, mastery, understanding, and direct access to running water, fresh water, and to uh, seafood, specifically fish, because fish produce a yield which, if you actually add it up by weight, is, um, you know, it, it's, it's actually incredible. It's an incredible sizable amount of food that people actually eat. If that was the case, then people would not have a taste for it as universally as we do. Almost every single culture uh, has a backbone uh, protein supplement of fish. Uh, specifically saltwater fish. And I know that sounds strange, but it's absolutely the case. There are very few societies that did not have fishing as one of their main industries. You know, before globalization, before the idea of the the whole modernization of the world came, local fishing and uh, mastering waterways was how societies formed. Now to keep going into the the literature on it, diet. 
Evidence supports aquatic food consumption in Homo as early as the Pliocene, but its linkage to brain evolution remains controversial. Further, there is no evidence that humans ate fish in significant amounts earlier than tens to hundreds of thousands of years ago. Supporters argue that the avoidance of taphonomic bias is the problem, as most hominem fossils occur in lakeside environments, and the presence of fish remains is there not proof of fish consumption. They also claim that archaeological record of human fishing and coastal settlement is fundamentally flawed due to the post-glacial sea level rise. In their 1989 book, The Driving Force, Food, Evolution, and the Future, Michael Crawford and David Marsh claimed that omega-3 fatty acids were vital for the development of the human brain. A branch of the line of the primitive ancestral apes was forced by competition to leave the trees and feed on the seashore. Searching for oysters, mussels, crabs, crayfish, and so on, they would have spent much of their time in the water and in an upright position would have come naturally. Once again, though, I, I kind of would like to point out that there's this competition element, this like, uh, we were being, we were on the losing end of some kind of uh, duel with another species, probably chimpanzees, and that the chimpanzees forced us to retreat to, I think it's prime real estate. I think that, like many animals, we chose the amphibian marine environment because that is a more ideal destination for life. Uh, believe it or not, <laughs> you know, seals, dolphins, whales, manatees, hippopotamuses, um, you know, like the, the marine animals that we have and the amphibious mammals that we have now, otters, they live there because it offers an incredible advantage to the surrounding area it gives you it exponentially increases the chance of likelihood of existence so like crocodiles and alligators do a lot better than like monitor lizards and turtle like tortoises and like that like sea turtles are generally much better off than say like a desert tortoise you know it's just not because of the physiology or the specific species has any inclination to it it's because within the available environments you know, you want liquid water. You want liquid water because it produces algae. Uh, it allows a form of drinking and, um, you know, some protection from the elements. If they believe it or not, water is actually a very stable and uh, safe place to live compared to the seasonal and, and you know, service. So, exactly, there's, there's a lot to go with it, basically. So yeah, so Crawford and uh, Marsh opined that brain size uh, in aquatic mammals is similar to humans, and that other primates and carnivores lost relative brain capacity. Kunan, Stewart, Carford, and uh, colleagues published works arguing a correlation between aquatic diet and human brain evolution in their shore-based diet scenario. Acknowledging the Hardy-Morgan thesis as fund foundation work of their model. As evidence, they described health problems in landlocked communities such as cretinism in the Alps and goat in parts of Africa due to the salt-derived iodine deficiency. That's another thing. Human beings do need salt. 
and state that inland habitats cannot naturally meet human iodide requirements. Exactly. Humans actually do have an iodide requirement, which is only available in sea salts. Biologists Caroline Pond and Dick Colby were highly critical, saying that work... I don't really care about the critical people anymore. Diving behavior and performance. Aside from working as a professor, Erica Shagady also experienced scuba and freediver, whose research centers around human diving abilities. She suggests that such abilities are consistent with selective pressure for underwater foraging during human evolution, and discussed other anatomical traits speculated as diving adaptations by Hardy Morgan. John Langdon suggests that such traits could be enabled by human... See, I don't really care about the John Langdon's opinion because he's a critic, but they always have to add that uh, contrarian viewpoint as if the one man's contrarian viewpoint beats the actual expertise and living experiences of someone who is both a professor and a scuba diver and a freediver and that this critic needs the final word because if you disagree that must mean you are more right simply because you're disagreeing with someone's proposal with someone's theory so they create a theory and you say no your no is worth more than their theory. This is how the system works now. We have a denialist, atheistic system. And it's not that science requires proof, because denial requires proof as well. We just give more validity and respect as a mainstream society does. Like, And I mean, we, we don't. I do not personally. But academia does. The universities do. The system does to anyone who disagrees, who denies, uh, anyone who attacks the system. So if you have a challenge to a system, the system will give re uh, more respect to those that defend the system, that, that in they encourage it that way. And Wikipedia is the tool of the system. Because even in something that is just a amateur collection of, of facts and, and uh, citations, notaries, example, uh, there has to be the system um, status quo maintaining criticisms given the last word. You know, and this is how controversialist theory is. Right. Vernix Cassiosa, Tom Brenna, professor of pediatrics whose primary research focuses on fats, oils, and fatty acids, listened to the 2005 radio documentary Scars of Evolution, where David Attenborough reported an observation that harbor seals were born with something that resembled human Vernix Cassiosa. Intrigued, Brenna led a team that collaborated with Judy St. Ledger at San Diego SeaWorld to compare the chemistry of human vernix in the samples of the California sea lion pups. They established that the molecular composition of both is similar, being rich in branched-chain fatty acids and squalene. Now, here's a very interesting iceberg, like a tip of an iceberg, with the whole who gets what respect you know, and when and where and why in the in this world of academia, this world of um, of letters of science of the university system. 
So, in 2005, a well-known, already established mainstream naturalist, David Attenborough, right? Maybe you've heard of him. He made the BBC documentary Planet Earth and then Blue Planet 1 and 2 with some of the best-selling nature documentaries of all time, right? Maybe you've heard of him. David Attenborough, one of the greatest living naturalists and natural philosophers and appreciators of nature and, you know, lovers of biology and life. He is. He goes out to the jungles you know, he has, he, he gives his literal work, like life's work to narrating the lives of animals so that the common man can understand and appreciate the miracles of life on Earth. He, David Attenborough, believes in the aquatic ape theory. David Attenborough believes that this is a valid theory and got experts together in the 2005, uh, the year 2005, to propose such. A American scientist, right, Tom Brennan, heard this, then decided to test it as if though he was going to call David Attenborough out. He was going to try to um, use David Attenborough's courage and his forward thinking, his imagination, his you know, his willingness to dream, to to test it with the scientific method. Right, and in such a dry and, and loveless fucking life, so he has to run through laboratory tests, etc. Even though David Attenborough already said that there are observations that harbor seals and human beings have a vernix caseosa, right? So this is not taken for grant for for his word on it. He's gonna prove it, right? He's gotta test it, and they test it at the San Diego Sea World. Right? These professionals, these people who curate sea mammals, test it. And it, it's proven correct. And you realize that, yes, I understand you have to have a system of measure, checks and measures, checks and balances, where things are tested and triple, and double tested and triple tested and quadruple tested and made sure they're... But when a man tells you something, when a professional tells you something, and not trying to be sexist, but when a, when a person, an expert tells you something... And you don't believe that expert. How are we supposed to believe you? And this is where I'm saying the weakness of the academic, modern academic university system is. Uh, who is the deciding factor on whose authority should be listened to, regardless of how many times they have tried, tested, what evidence they have? If David Attenborough had already ran it through his own system of checks and balances and naturalists and professors and, and professionals and decided to put his name on it this is not someone who does this lightly this is someone who's living his profession is to be a natural philosopher right his reputation is his livelihood and this was in 2005 this was 15 years ago that they would say no hold on let me do let me run it through the scientific method let me put it through the lab and let me, let me make sure that this is all correct. And then when they find that it's correct, like what they're left just holding the bag, basically. They're left now knowing that there is something more of the grand picture. But the academic world, the university system, refuses to listen to either of these two opinions. 
In fact, even in the Wikipedia, John Langdon's his rebuttal of this theory in 1997 is still cited in 2021 on the Wikipedia of the aquatic ape theory itself. As even though they give the details of the aquatic ape theory, that this man John Langdon in 1997 said that it's wrong, and thus everything has John Langdon's um, criticism and his contradictions attached to it as the last word. Even though David, uh, such luminary figures as David Attenborough and his critics in the form of Tom Brenna and Judy St. Ledger of the San Diego SeaWorld, uh, of this, you know, modern-day uh, marine mammal research center, basically, tested it with hard scientific laboratory, like, you know, methods, methodology, and proved that it's correct. That the observation of baby seals being born in a sim- with a similar fashion, a similar organ-like type system, and a similar uh, physiology, like around, like the womb, the cervix, all that stuff, as baby seals, which can be seen just from the naked eye, is right on a cellular level, is right on a molecular level, on a physiological level. It has scientific, you know, validity to it. This is actual, however you want to say, a hard science. Is these aren't theories, these aren't postulations, these aren't, um, you know, mind games or, or purely, you know, mind experiments. These are real provable links between sea mammals and human beings. You know, it's it's that easy. Now, the real controversy begins not just by understanding that this thing exists as a theory. But like I just got to say, the amount of experts and the amount of real professionals who believe in this stuff, like uh, in in the real world. Now... The Smithsonian Institute is no friend of mine. I have a lot of problems with the Smithsonian Institute being that it's the Royal Academy of Sciences. The Smithsonian Institute being that it's the Royal Academy of Sciences American counterpart, uh, funded by the British, funded by a British man who would never set foot in America to tell Americans their history. Um, but they have a magazine called Smithsonian Magazine. They also have a television channel. Uh, they have a lot of media, though, right? And this is basically the mainstream American science word of, like, you know, like, like it's the word of law, right? It's basically from the mountaintop, right? Uh, that is the choir of the church of mainstream scientific reality in America. They have an article that they published in 2012, April 16th, 2012, by Aaron Wayman, called The New Aquatic Ape Theory. The aquatic ape theory, now largely dismissed, tries to explain the origins of many of humankind's unique traits. Popularized in the 1970s and 1980s by writer Elaine Morgan, the theory suggests that early hominids lived in water at least part of the time. This aquatic lifestyle supposedly accounts for our hairless bodies, which made us more streamlined for swimming and diving, our upright two-legged walking, which made wading easier, and our layers of subcutaneous fat, which made us better insulated in water. Think whale blubber. The theory even links an aquatic existence to the evolution of human speech. 
the hypothesis was met with so much criticism that it's not even mentioned in human evolution textbooks. But that doesn't mean aquatic habitats didn't play some kind of role in our ancestors' lives. In 2009, Richard Wrangham of Harvard University and colleagues suggested in the American Journal of Physical Anthropology that shallow aquatic habitats allowed hominids to thrive in savannas, enabling our ancestors to move from tropical forests to open grasslands. About 2.5 million to 1.4 million years ago, when the genus Homo emerged, Africa became drier. During certain seasons, already dry savannas became even more arid, making it difficult for hominids to find adequate food. But Wrangham's team argues that even in this inhospitable environment, there were oases, wetlands, and lake shores. In these aquatic habitats, water lilies, cattails, herbs, and other plants would have had edible, nutritious underground parts, roots, and tubers that would have been available year-round. These fallback foods would have gotten hominids through the lean times. The researchers based their arguments on modern primate behavior. For example, baboons in Botswana's Okavanga Delta, which floods every summer, start eating a lot of water lily roots when fruit becomes scarce. And hunter-gatherers in parts of Africa and Australia also eat a lot of roots and tubers from aquatic plants. The fossil record also hints at the importance of aquatic environments. Wrangham and his team looked at nearly 20 hominid fossil sites in East and South Africa. In East Africa, the geological and fossil evidence suggests that hominids were living in areas with lakes or flooded grasslands. South African sites tended to be drier, but were still located near streams. The researchers say foraging in these environments may have led to habitual upright walking. Today, chimpanzees and gorillas occasionally venture into shallow bodies of water, and when they do, they wade on two legs. It makes sense, wading bipedally allows the apes to keep their heads above water. As our earliest ancestors spent longer and longer periods of time wading upright, it became beneficial to evolve specialized anatomy for two-legged walking. Wrangham and his colleagues acknowledged that their case rests on circumstantial evidence, but there's no direct proof that this is now hominids are living, and the evidence was alternative explanations. Or the, the evidence has alternative explanations. For instance, watery habitats allow for better fossil preservation, so finding hominids in watery locales may be representative of where they actually spent most of their time. Uh, kind of like the... Uh, basically reaching for straws the critics are just reaching for straws saying that the human beings didn't have a population that was larger on these waterways it's just that fossils are easier to form and you know surely the populations were greater where there was less water because of why would mankind want to just live near a body of water like a river or a lake we we <laughs> The, the, the arguing of it is simply because they don't want this idea that mankind, uh, you know, did anything more than simply drop out of a tree and then start throwing spears around, uh, which is clearly not the romanticized, but at the same time, it's incredibly uh, just oversimplified. 
of an explanation for how mankind kind of gained the intellect and the social ability. Like I said, the voice is itself, the human voice is itself an uh, indicator of amphibious evolution because it would move away from the nasal cavity and away from roars and yells to throat speaking, which, um, you know, are the idea of diving. And free diving has shown that within the last 20 years, the world record for holding one's breath, which was deemed by these people to be at the literal limits of human possibility, was five to seven minutes. It is now at least in its the 20 minutes, approaching the half hour mark. Um, this is actually true and an incredible fact because mankind can officially hold its breath longer than most sea mammals. Pinnipeds, um, you know, sea otters, etc., which have more heavily, I guess you call it, uh, adapted and invested into this marine life. So many, so many um, similarities and bullet points of comparison. Intersections of ability and environment, you know, that it cannot easily be ignored by simply saying that there were other alternatives which provided as adequate of an explanation. Specifically, the evolution of mankind's uh, brain. Now, Erin Wayman is a science and human evolution blogger for Hominid Hunting. She has a Master's of Arts in uh, Biological Anthropology and Science Writing. Right? So she is a reporter. This was written um, in 2012. So I consider it, you know, within the recent past, but other people may disagree because it's it's eight to seven years. But no more research or argumentation can be found when you're talking about a subject that is literally millions of years old, the evolution of humanity. It's not like these revelations and theories change on, you know, overnight. It's just that they are fought harder and harder and harder. And this was officially published in Smithsonian Magazine, meaning that at least in an editorial sense, Smithsonian Magazine is willing to accept the fact that a lot of professionals and academics are doing a lot of work and while this is an extremely controversial subject that is not taught in academia, which is excluded from anthropological textbooks and the introduction courses to anthropology or even the mainstream um, discourse, it is so taboo that it is probable, that it is plausible, that it has validity. Now, the reason why they don't want you to even start thinking down these lines of thought is because if you open the door to suggest that they are wrong, then everything they say could be wrong, because everything they say is wrong. And the reason why they fight so hard tooth and nail is the fact that they know the evidence will prove the aquatic ape theorists right. And that every single person who runs studies or does tests or does the research can find corresponding 
evidence, data points on the many different tiers from population numbers to uh, physiology to the development of intellect to the idea of food source being the omega-3 fatty acids which produce the, the brain lipids, etc., etc., etc. The wombs uh, from seals and human beings being made of the same um, cell systems, etc., etc., etc. These things are undeniable hard evidence suggests that marine and aquatic environments was a phase in our development. Now, this is more of a matter of the fact that they lie to us from the very fundamentals of reality, so this, this is just their weak point. This is their chink in their armor. And this is their vulnerable you know, temple of their skull that when you start applying enough pressure to it, it doesn't take much to break through. And once you cause that first break, the injury is fatal to the beast. Because once you prove that the best of their anthropologists missed this, they are no longer supermen who have who have mastered a concept which is a, impossible for the layman to understand. The seeing of deep time, the unveiling of the evolutionary model of Darwin, that we were just too ignorant in our own dark ages to see. But rather... Science and human evolution and who we are as a species, thus our fate and our destiny, the future of our species. You don't need to have a lifelong um, approval by academia. A child can see the writing on the wall. A layman can put this together. In fact, every single thing in in front of your eyes tells you that one thing is right and the only voices telling you that it's wrong is the very are the very voices of the system it is collapsing if a building is on fire and everyone outside the building is doing their best to put out the fire, except for the people inside the building. If everyone in the neighborhood and all the fire department is trying to put out the house fire, and the only people who aren't trying to put out the house fire are the people who live in the house, <laughs> this is the level of insanity that mainstream... Um, you know, reality, truth, thought, gatekeeping, um, academia, university system level, professionals, professors, um, and their lap dogs, et cetera, et cetera, the skeptical atheist denialist community, um, the, uh, these ignorant, dark ages, assholes who fucking, uh, they point and, and, and hold up just the worst level of, uh, you know, ignoramuses as their as their wise sages to kind of uh, follow their their kind of idea that they're the scientists who believe, say for example, in only Darwinian evolution and no idea of intelligent design, um, they will deny this very common sense if unorthodox root of humanity simply because they did not say it and so you see it's not at all a matter of right and wrong it's not at all a matter of 
benevolent uh, wisdom and, and fire keeping, you know, like Promethean delivering of intelligence. Even if the truth hurts, it's still the truth. It is an ego-driven dictatorship, a tyranny. And tyranny doesn't care about what's right and wrong. They just want to overpower and force your submission because it positions them in power. So regardless of what's right and wrong, as long as they are in power, that's all they care about. They have purposely made society stupid and argue down any intelligent person to the point that this aquatic ape theory, which has so many credible believers, most famously David Attenborough of the planet Earth Blue Planet fame, that they don't even include it in universities. They don't even include the, the controversy. They don't include the debate. And it's a modern debate. It's not an antiquated, dark ages, Earth revolves around the sun type belief. It is a belief that was created in the 1960s with the most recent of evidence. It's a belief that was re uh, made famous and given a second breath in the 1990s. A time of great uh, social and, and academic revolution. It was a belief that is written about positively by the 2012 Smithsonian Magazine. It is a belief that David Attenborough made a radio documentary by the BBC in 2005. Um, it has major academic proponents uh, around the world. You know, it's not uh, fitting to one... It's not like uh, intelligent design in the form of evolution uh, is denied because it has uh, roots in the Christian right or in biblical fundamentalism. I can understand the battles of ideologies. This is literally um, the, the academic community eating its own because of thought crimes, which is a very fascinating concept. Thought crimes. And that someone, somewhere is going to tell you what you can and can't think and what's right and wrong to think. Not because they know it's wrong, but because they have an investment in being right. And that investment's power over you. Power over the people. Now this is the first hour of the uh, radio show that I'm doing now on the aquatic uh, ape theory, the episode. And I'm going to be leaving it there, drawing my, my quick uh, adoos and bows and uh, taking the curtain there for the public segment of it. This is the free public segment of it, available on many fine directories online, Spotify, Anchor, Apple Podcasts, just to name the top three. Uh, many, many others. There's about 10 to 15 different free directories that I know about that I upload to directly via the, uh, the software on my iPad. Uh, but, you know, if you could find this, uh, definitely, uh, you know, however you want to listen to it, through Himalaya, through some of the third party. I mean, also share. Uh, share this with your friends, etc. Uh, post it on your social media. Share it Telegram pages that you own. Etc. So just get that word out there, help spread the message. But uh, if you want to gain access to the second hour that I'm going to be running, uh, the exclusive hour of content, uh, you have to purchase a ticket starting at a dollar to hear this uh, portion, this new next portion of the show. 
Um, dollar a month cheaper than a cup of coffee at the corner store, cheaper than a burger at McDonald's. Um, you gain access to direct messaging um, abilities, like uh, direct messaging with me, so that you can um, ask me questions or your opinions. Um, you know, I'll, I'll always respond back to them at least once a week. You gain access to exclusive content, like the second hour of this uh, program. The uh, second hours of the future programs, which I will be doing, as well as exclusive uncensored content, which was too um, controversial for Instagram and or YouTube. The Patreon also offers different tiers, offering even more exclusive packages, etc. I greatly appreciate your support. Like I said, all I'm asking for is the ticket price of a dollar a month to gain access to these exclusive perks, exclusive media, the content, and benefits. It benefits me, it funds my projects, and it helps support independent journalism. Um... Regardless, I hope you follow along with my channel. If you're a new listener, new subscriber, uh, on Instagram at Rumors of Instinct, all one word. YouTube, Rumors of Instinct Podcast. Reach out to me, leave me a comment, DM me. Always appreciate the motivation, always appreciate the support. On Instagram, I post daily uh, memes, um, great evidence, footage, etc. It's a kind of paranormal uh, meme page, catch-all page. And on the YouTube, you can check out the video productions, archive of episodes, and uh, basically the history of the channel, which is all posted up there for you guys. Over 300 videos, 365 videos of current count. Definitely a lot of material for their for your binging pleasure, for your watching and viewing pleasure. Um, once again, absolutely incredibly motivated and, and uh, encouraged by your good, kind words. So feel free to reach out, contact me, share your experiences. Uh, once again, that's all I can say. So thank you all very much out there in dreamland. Namaste and shalom. Iron sharpens iron. A friend sharpens a friend. This is the end of the public portion of the podcast. So uh, thank you all very much. Consider joining the Patreon. Like I said, starting at a dollar a month. Cheaper than a cup of coffee at the corner store. Cheaper than a burger at Big Mac. A dollar a month gets you access to direct messaging and the exclusive content, such as the following hour of this podcast. The Aquatic Ape Theory, thank you all very much. I am Rumors of Instinct. This has been the Rumors of Instinct podcast. God bless you and your families. Namaste and shalom. Iron sharpens iron. A friend sharpens a friend.